So do you ever get the sense that you're running out of time? Like you've been living out your days with no sense of purpose or direction, and it feels almost like it's even too late to make any significant changes to fix it? I hate it when I feel like I'm living an empty life. Don't you? Like I'm just pacing the cage, counting down the minutes, waiting for whatever is going to happen next to happen. We were all created initially as spiritual beings who were meant for something more than just this world. The Bible says that we were created with a sense of eternity in our hearts, like there is a deep understanding where we were created with an understanding that there is something more. And yet somewhere down the line, it feels like we just set our spiritual side aside so that we could focus in on all the other stuff that we have to get done in life. And now it's just easier to go through the motions of the everyday chaos and just check out on everything that requires me to be anything spiritual because it no longer comes naturally for me. But there is, if I'm honest, in those quiet moments, this tugging at my heart that reminds me what it's all about. King David in the Psalms put it like this. Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know just how fleeting my life really is. You have made my days, but just a moment. The span of my years is like nothing before you. Everyone is just a breath, even those who seem so secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom, in vain, they rush about heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, Lord, now what do I look for? Because I have put my hope in you. Morning, y'all. It's good to be back with you. It's been a while. I'm uh, happy to report that uh, Scott and Lindsay Alexander are in the house this morning. For those of you who don't know, Scott was uh, the main pastor around here for a lot of years and decided to pack up his family, move to Haiti, uh, where they uh, all serve in a, in a mission there, um, doing some incredible things in Port-au-Pay. Uh, Lindsay ran the kids' ministry for a lot of years here, so it's always fun to have you guys back. Welcome back. You know, um, just in case you need a reminder, um, one of the great things about kids... And every now and then I have to remind myself about the great things, uh, is that they keep us old folk uh, informed about modern culture, all the things that I normally wouldn't know or understand, things that are beyond my realm. And I have to thank uh, our kids for introducing me to one of the funniest YouTube videos I've ever seen in my life. Um, it's a YouTube video where this a woman by the name of Sweet Brown from Oklahoma City uh, is interviewed when a fire broke out in her apartment 
complex down there. Does anybody know the video I'm talking about? All right, good, good, good. So if you don't know, like you don't do it in here, but Google it when you get home. I don't want to be hearing that little rap thing going on. Uh, but she, uh, it is the funniest thing ever. But uh, she described the scene to this uh, reporter, and she was hysterical. And she said, you know, she was getting out of bed to get her a cold pop when she realized that there was a fire. Lord Jesus, it's a fire, she said. And uh, she said the smoke gave her the bronchitis, which led her into her very, very famous line, and she said, ain't nobody got time for that. Well, the thing went viral overnight, and uh, they've made songs and raps and remixes to the whole thing, and Miss Brown has now done the talk show circuit and some commercials using her now famous, and I think now copyrighted line. And so I think that I am legally obligated to give Miss Brown of Oklahoma City credit for the inspiration that came to the title of this message, Ain't Nobody Got Time for That. So this is all to uh, Miss Sweet Brown of Oklahoma City. But I, I called it that, and not to mention the fact that once you hear it, it's going to stick in your head just as a warning, a red label on that. It's going to stick in your head forever. You're not going to be able to get the song out of your head. However, but I named it this the message this because I feel like the older that I get, the more of a sense of urgency I have about the time that I have left in my life. I mean, if I'm honest about it, when I look at where I'm at today, if I want to admit it or not, I'm beyond the halfway point. Unless, by some miracle, I end up on the front of a smucker's jar, I'm beyond, you know, I'm 48 years old and I'm beyond the halfway point of my life. And I just have this sense now that, you know, people who are older than me tell me that, you know, the years roll by and it just passes just like that. And I just don't, I just don't want to waste time no more on stuff that doesn't matter. I I just don't want to waste time on things that in the scheme of things just don't mean a thing. Because ain't nobody got time for that. Well, this morning I want to look at a passage in 2 Kings where the prophet Elijah also realizes that he doesn't have much time left on this earth. And God asked him to find a replacement for him, not because he's getting fired, but because his days on this earth are numbered. And so God told Elijah to go out and find a man by the name of Elisha and appoint him as a prophet who will take his place. But in the meantime, that he should train him up, he should teach him, and he should make him into the great uh, prophet that Elijah has been for God. And so Elijah takes that on. He takes on Elisha under his wing and as his protege. And the cool thing about the story is that they become really close friends. They became very tight and um, had a mutual respect for each other that you can just see this friendship develop um, as it goes along. So we're going to look at uh, 2 Kings chapter one, or chapter 2, verse 1, and and uh, speaking of me not having much time left, uh, I'm debuting my glasses for the first time. <laughs> what do you think? You like them? Yeah. All right. 
Yeah. All right. So 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, as if that's somehow normal conversation, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from uh, Gilgal. Well, somehow they knew that God was about to pluck Elijah from this world in some crazy way that only God could think up. And apparently... Both of them had this understanding that Elijah's time was coming to an end. And I have to believe that with that knowledge that Elijah has, that his time is coming to an end, that he doesn't have much time left, that he has to, like any of us, reflect back on what his life has been about. And, you know, it just makes me wonder, like, when we look back on our lives... At where we're at, if we just look at where we're at today, June, whatever, 2015, and you ask yourself honestly, what has my life been about up until this point? And when we reflect and identify what life has been about for me up until this time, it usually leads me to one very important realization. You know what that is? I want it to be about more than that. I want my life to be so much more moving forward than what it's been in the past. I want my life to matter. I want my life to have a sense of purpose. I I want it to mean something. And whatever it is that we're spending the precious moments of our life doing, the reality is that becomes the thing that you're giving your life for. Well, that passage continues in verses 2 and 3 when it says, Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. And so they went down together to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. (laughs) So it appears that Elisha has become so attached to his mentor, Elijah, that no matter what, Elisha refuses to leave his side. And it's a really cool story, I think, of friendship and loyalty and mutual respect because it appears that either out of concern for Elisha um, and the pain that he may experience or perhaps because of his own humility, Elijah knew that he was going to be taken from this earth and so he wants to go out quietly as if you could somehow leave this world in a whirlwind quietly, but he wants to quietly slip away. Whatever it is for Elijah, for the next several verses, it appears that Elijah is trying to shake Elisha to get rid of him and to get away by himself. And every time Elisha says, no way, I'm your wingman, I'm not leaving your side. And also, it's like everybody somehow knows that God is going to take Elijah from this world because every time they encounter a new group of people... They say, oh, by the way, Elisha, did you know that God is going to take Elijah from you today? 
as if somehow they're trying to prepare him for the big moment. And every time Elisha says, shut up, I don't want to talk about it. I don't even want to think about it. Because he can't bear the thought of the pain of the loss that he's going to experience of losing his best friend. And he wants to hold on to that moment as tight as he can. There's a great quote that I read not too long ago by an anonymous source that says this. Life is made up of a collection of moments that are not ours to keep. And the pain we encounter throughout our days spent on this earth comes from the illusion that some moments can be held on to, when in reality, they can't be. Because life is so fleeting. Well, it finally becomes apparent to Elijah that he's not going to lose Elisha, and so he concedes defeat, and he decides to keep him with him. And so they're hanging out together, walking together, um, as his time is coming to an end. And then in verse 8, it says that Elijah kind of pulls off this last-minute miracle before he leaves. So they come to the Jordan River, And Elijah, it apparently seems that Elijah wants to show Elisha that his source of power and strength really is from God and not from himself. And so it's almost like a mini version of Moses parting the Red Sea thing or something. Because Elijah takes off his jacket, he rolls it up, and he just gently touches the water. And as he touches the water, the water rolls back, it divides, and Elijah and Elisha walk across on dry land. I mean, it was an absolute miracle. And then it goes on in verses 9 and 10, it says, And when they had crossed over the river, Elijah stops and he says to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? And Elisha replied, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Elijah turns and asks this, I I think he, I, I just get a sense that he feels like something of God is happening in this moment. I mean, miracles are happening, of course it is. But he just stops and says, what can I do for you before I leave? Just to, what can, is there anything I can do? And without hesitation, Elisha says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. And that word spirit that he uses there means that he he wants to be like him. He, He wants to be the man of God that Elijah is. He wants to be this great person of faith. He wants his very essence to be like him. And so it's almost like Elisha's got himself a genie in a bottle moment. And he could have asked for anything. I mean, this guy, Elijah, he was very connected. And he could have asked for wealth. He could have asked for power. But instead, he asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And I'm sure Elijah says, well, if I'm going to dream, I might as well dream big, right? If I'm going to ask, I might as well make the big ask. Because Elijah was the greatest man of God that ever walked on the face of this earth. And so to achieve that kind of faith that Elijah had was seemed to be utterly impossible. But then to double it, to actually be 
greater than the prophet Elijah? Nobody could comprehend it. He was absolutely dreaming in some incredible ways, and Elisha knew what I wish all of us could know. That God can do things through us that we can't even imagine possible. If you had your genie in a bottle moment, and you had your shot at asking for anything, what would it be? What is it that you dream about? What is it when you shut your eyes and you think, man, if I could just, what is that? Is what you want so badly, is it really worth it? Because if we're spending our time on things, if we're focused on the stuff of this world that has no value beyond this life, then it's just so not worth it. We ain't got time for that. The life that we live here is like just a blip on the screen in the scheme of eternity. And if what we're living for doesn't last beyond the grave, then everything that we're working so hard to achieve and to build here on this earth, it's like it gets buried with us. As many of you know, I'm a volunteer here at Westridge, and um, my Monday through Friday is spent in the business world. And I readily admit that I am a success-driven person. I really love to be successful. And I've found that I have to fight through the distractions of getting the next deal done or making more money or building wealth or building a great company to get down to the core of what's really important. And it just frustrates me after all these years that I could still be led in that direction where that becomes 100% of my focus, where I get in that business zone and that's where I head and that's where I go and that's where my head is. And, and, and I found the only way that I could even pop out of it is when I take all of the success that I feel so good about. When I take all the stuff that my pride says, man, that was incredible that you did that. Good job. When I take all the things that I've done and I boil it down and I say, what does it matter in the end? What will it matter when it's all over? Is it something that will make a difference after they bury me? It changes my entire outlook. Because I have to tell you, most of the time, most of what I get so uptight about, most of the things that I am holding on to so tightly is not going to amount to a hill of beans after I'm dead and gone. Understanding clearly what it is that I am living for will not only cause us to understand how it is 
that I'm going to spend my time, but it also identifies the things that I'm wasting my time on. It causes us to ask the question, what is it that I am investing my life in? Is it something that has any value beyond this life? Is it worth it? Well, let's go on and something incredible happens in verses 11 and 12 that I can't quite explain, but it says that as they were walking along and talking together, Elijah and Elisha, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, and Elisha saw him no more. And then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two because he was in such great grief. I'm not quite sure what to even say about that because it's such an incredible, unbelievable scene. Chariot of fire and horses of fire coming down from the heavens, swooping this man of God up. It's like God is directing this chariot of fire to go down and pick up his boy Elijah because he's led such an incredible life. I mean, what a dream, right? I mean, to be able to, you know, do not pass go, do not go through death, go directly to heaven. I mean, that's a pretty nice thing. And I think that as Elijah was coming into those last moments, I I try to get into his head. And I have to believe that as he's seeing this thing come down out of heaven, he's not only scared to death, or excuse the pun, however you do that, but, but that like he has this moment where his life passes by him, and he's just reflecting on his life. And I think that in that moment, he knew, man. He knew that everything that he did, everything that he sacrificed, everything that he gave his life for was so worth it. Well, apparently, Elisha was immediately struck with grief at the loss of Elijah. And so it says that Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where where now is the Lord? Where is the God of Elijah, he asked, when he struck the water. And when he did, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. And the company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, Surely the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. So in the midst of it, apparently, Elijah at least had the presence of mind to leave behind his jacket. And so Elisha reaches down and picks it up. Symbolically, he is picking up where Elijah left off as the heir apparent, as the new prophet. But Elisha is mad. He's mad at God. He's got this pain of this loss of his friend. He's angry that he's no longer going to see him. And so he takes that coat 
and he walks up to the Jordan River to the very spot where Elijah had just performed this miracle, and he takes the coat, and he slams it into the water, and he says, where are you now, God? Have you ever been there? Where you've just experienced this pain where you feel like God has abandoned you? Like you don't even know how you're going to go on? And he just yells out, where are you now, God? And I think to his shock and amazement, all of a sudden, the water parts. I mean, it was miraculous in the exact same way that it did for Elijah. The water just divides. And in that moment, Elisha knew. He knew. God was with him. And everyone who was watching also knew that Elisha had indeed received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And Elisha went on to become one of the greatest prophets in the Bible. Elijah left behind this legacy. I mean, he poured what he was living for in life all into Elisha to be able to carry on after his death. That he left behind something of greater value than leaving him money or position or power. He left behind a legacy of faith. And so the last question I think becomes, what is it that you're leaving behind? What kind of legacy are you leaving And I think the answer to this question is actually determined by the answer of the first one, because whatever it is that we leave behind comes directly out of whatever it is that we are investing our lives in. And unfortunately, there are a whole lot of us who are leaving behind stuff that ain't worth anything. I mean, let's be real for a minute. There will come a day when our lives will come to an end and we will have a moment when we look back upon our lives, how we spent our time and our energy and what a miss it will be if we look back and realize that we have focused our life on all the wrong stuff. We don't have time for that. If we're dying, if we're giving our lives to achieve some sort of success or money so that we can leave our kids something behind, so that people will think well of us because of some of the things that we did in our lives, then we're leaving behind stuff that isn't worth very much. I personally have a goal to spend all of my money before any of my kids get it. Anybody with me on that? Mm -hmm. But to leave behind a legacy of faith, to do something where you figure out how to make a difference in somebody's life, to figure out a way to make a difference in the world, that's something worth dying for. That's something that has a value that goes beyond the grave. 
And we may fail miserably at trying it, but you know what I say to that? At least we fail trying to do something because so many of us don't try anything. We're just content to live the status quo. You have dreams that seem too big and so you don't even pursue them. Dreams that seem impossible. Then dream bigger. Ask God for a double portion and just make sure that your life, what you're doing, what you are achieving in your life matters. That what you are giving your life for is so worth it. I think that we all underestimate what God is capable of doing in our lives. All of us are so much more capable of what God can do through us than what we give God credit for and what we allow time for in our lives. I mean, we're so jammed up every day with all the stuff of life that we don't even have capacity for God to do a thing in us. We don't even have room. We don't have space for it because we're so jammed up doing all the stuff of life. But what if we created capacity? What if we created space and asked God to do something? The aha moment of our life is when all of a sudden I get it. And for the first time, I know that I was created to be this thing. When I know what it is that God wants me to do, that I have a clarity about what I'm living for. And all of a sudden, there is this clear path in front of me, and a mission now drives everything that I do. I have to tell you, the older that I get, the more desperate I am to make a difference. I do this business thing, which is really cool and a lot of fun, and I am grateful to God that he has given me this opportunity to do it. But at the end of the day, if I'm not taking what I am building in that and using that to make a difference, what am I doing? I'm building something for myself, something that at the end of the day doesn't matter, that doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Ask yourself, what is it that God wants from you? And whatever it is, take a risk and ask God to use you in a big way. But just start trying to figure it out. Just take some small steps in serving, whether it's in kids ministry or cafe or at a homeless shelter or something. Just open the door of your life to begin serving and to begin looking for opportunities to make a difference. And you have no idea what that will lead to. You might end up in a third world country someday. You don't know. Jesus said, I've come not so that you could live life as normal. I've come not so that you could have a status quo good life. But he says, I have come to give you a life that will go way beyond your wildest dreams. When we come to the end of our life, we may not go out in a fiery chariot. But there will come a moment in your life as you look back at the days 
and you know. You'll know that everything that you've sacrificed and what you have given your life for is so worth it.